You are listening to the Dradcast, episode 97, with special guest Arthur Geese. This episode of the Dradcast is brought to you by Pagely, the original WordPress managed host. If you're looking for rock-solid WordPress hosting, contact the experts at pagely.com today. Get ready for the Dradcast. Your favorite nerds. Brad Williams and Dre Armada bring you high-octane conversations with new guests every week. Covering the latest news, insight on recent events, and interviews with tech titans. Pour yourself a quality cocktail. What kind of software? Drag. Sit back and chill. Because the Dragcast starts now. Have no fear. Your favorite nerds are here. It's the Dradcast, episode 97. Dre, my brother, how's it going? Autobots roll out. I'm here with Bradimus Prime. What's going on, brother? Oh, man. Bradimus Prime. The nickname I never thought I would get. (laughs) (laughs) You got got it, though. Man, how you doing? I'm doing great. Another rainy, crappy day in Philly. Some uh, pretty intense thunderstorms last night, actually. Dude. Crazy enough, so I'm, I'm doing a, um, a pre-run for a, a jeeping event uh, that's that's occurring next weekend. But this Saturday, we're going up all of the trail guides. We're heading up to the hill, and uh, we're going to pre-run all of the trails, make sure there's no safety hazards, and we get um, the, the lines and alternate lines uh, for, for those that can't make the big obstacles. And we're getting, like, like I don't know, a ton of snow. So it's it's like 65 right now, and it's, it's going to be dumping snow three days up there. Uh, and it's perfect timing because... I've got no top or doors on the Jeep right now. Should be good. Oh, yeah. You know what they say? April showers bring May flurries, right? No? <laughs> yeah. Something like I that. I guess. I don't yeah, know. After the weather past. we've all had in the past six months, a year, it's been a really odd odd couple seasons, that's for sure. I'm ready for summer, man. Uh, Definitely for ready sure. for summer. I actually had a pretty fun weekend up in Buffalo. Went to WordCamp Buffalo. I spoke up there. On some pretty uh, pretty cool topics around helping scope scope your projects, and I ate literally a ridiculous amount of buffalo wings. So, I think my- so I mean, I'm, I'm sure the event was amazing, and the discussion was awesome. You always give uh, pretty top notch uh, 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 discussions at, at work camps and different events, but the pictures that you were posting of the food, the I food. mean, I would have flown out just for the food bro i mean it's really all about the food right so you go someplace you want to have the local fare so what would you eat in buffalo you eat wings so we went to the original anchor bar where they were invented had about 50 wings and that gave us plenty of leftovers had them later that night had them for breakfast had them after the event (laughs) had more wings at the after party with a serious case of gowns yeah, so yeah, the eight-hour eight-hour train ride back was fun, but uh, I had a great time. It's uh, really really nice people up in Buffalo. So shout out to everybody at WordCamp Buffalo. All my new friends I met up there had a really fun time. So, so we have a really fun guest this week. I'm excited about. It. He might have the coolest job in the world. So let's bring him on, Definitely. Arthur. Welcome to the show, man. Uh, thanks for having me. I mean, I guess it depends on what you think my job is. <laughs> well, oh, let's, boy. let's find out. So what, one of the things that you do is you review video games. Yes, that is, that is one of several things that I have to do on a daily basis. And sadly, it's the one that I do probably the least out of oh, all the things shit. that I do. Oh man. Um, I feel like my, my inner, you know, uh, ever since I was a, a young man, ever since I could pick up a controller, all I wanted to do was do anything that had to do with video games 
at any point in my day for the rest of my life. And <laughs> even if it's the smallest part, you're still you're still tapping into that. So you have a number of, of game reviews out there. You've worked for a number of different sites. You're currently um, the reviews editor over at Polygon.com. So what, in terms of the game review, and how does that how does that work? Um, I mean, I'm reviews editor, which means that I run reviews on the site. Uh, and in my case, uh, as time has gone on, that's that's sort of become a lot more management of that process and making sure that. Stuff gets assigned, stuff gets written, stuff gets edited, um, and so my my reviewing of games is slowed down. But um, I guess it depends on what you're curious about. Like how does how does a game get reviewed? Like what's the how does the sausage yeah, what, get made? Is that what yeah? What, what is the process? I mean, I think on the surface it might sound straightforward, right? You play a game, you write your thoughts on it. But is it is it a little bit more than that? Uh, I think that there's kind of an inordinate amount of time for me in figuring out when we're going to get things, uh, in trying to communicate with the game publisher or developer when we're going to get things, because that really determines, um, what kind of timetable we're going to be on. And, um, the way that I try to, to explain it is that, um, lots of people like to read books, um, and, when you're in high school or college, there are all sorts of books you have to read that maybe you don't like or that you would like if you didn't have to finish them in a very compressed amount of time. Uh, and time is really sort of the uh, the thing that's in shortest supply uh, in my job. And, and that's like sort of the biggest part of it is just trying to manage that time and actually make sure that things happen when they need to. And uh, it's really challenging, unfortunately. Um, uh, having to turn around something that most people will spend a couple of weeks on in their personal time uh, much faster than that, usually over the course of like two or three days or three or four days um, or a week or two weeks, if we're incredibly lucky, um, is challenging. And it requires a lot of sort of management of expectations and understanding of uh, of what you think about games and why and what you think about things and why because you really need to know whether or not you're annoyed at something because you're on a timetable that sucks, which is often, or because something sucks, which is hopefully less often. Um, but, you know, um, it's... I'm... I'm I'm not under any illusions that I'm not very lucky. I'm very lucky to do what I do because very few people get to do what I do. But uh, it's a job, and sometimes it uh, it really makes you have to to reevaluate the way that you feel about games on a regular basis. It's just the complicated nature of taking something that people view as a hobby and making it a living. Yeah, that's you know, I guess that's certainly something I don't think outside looking in most people would realize the the time crunch that that you're you know you and your team are certainly under. Um, it's so it sounds like when you are reviewing a game, I mean, it's you're playing it top to bottom, um, and then and then putting you know and probably taking notes or whatever, but then kind of putting that together. So you actually finish every game that you review. Uh, I can think of maybe two games over the last four years that I haven't finished before I wrote the review. Um, uh, in fact, recently I wrote some impressions of a game and very specifically made a point of saying it wasn't a review because I didn't finish it. Um, other outlets have different policies. Uh, on occasion, I think most people who review games try to finish them. Um, 
for us, I think it's a matter of respect because regardless of whether or not the game is good uh, or what we think of it, there were a lot of people that spent a very large chunk of their life that they'll never get back making that game. And so I think that at the very least, uh, if I'm writing something that has the sort of cachet of having the word reviewed applied to it, that's going to get aggregated on a site like Metacritic um, and cited in things like I've done interviews with USA Today and I've had stuff appear in like the Washington Post, the New York Times, like I, I at least owe it to them to have something that says review on it uh, be as well considered as I possibly can have it. Um, and that usually means finishing it insofar as something can really be finished now because a lot of games try not to end uh, for whatever reason. Um, so, so yeah, for, for us, it's very important, I think, that we, we try to finish these games before we put a review on the site. So you haven't completed Grand Theft Auto V 100%? Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, is that I even possible? Enjoyed. It is technically. Um, I think an example like that though would be something like Fallout Four. I reviewed Fallout Four last fall, um, and I didn't complete it because that's insane. Uh, I had ten days, I think, to play as much Fallout Four as I could, or maybe like seven days, seven eight days. Um, and I played about seventy hours in that period, uh, in addition to everything else that I have to do in my day. But um, in a case like that, it's just getting as good a sort of idea of what that game is and what it's about as possible. And, you know, like trying to put in a good faith effort to see a lot of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And that's, that is the tricky part, right? Because you're right, a lot of games coming out these days are kind of these endless, maybe maybe not completely endless but certainly not something you're going to get done in a week um unless you're literally playing 24 hours a day Um, yeah the the open world games are definitely a a real kind of nightmare um for people who do this job uh i reviewed the witcher 3 last year i don't know if you're familiar with that one um that was about 70 hours over the course of seven days um one of which was a day where I didn't play anything at all because I had a, a prior commitment. Um, so that was sometimes it's actually a little physically uncomfortable, a, a little physically uh, painful to have to get through some of these because of just the time commitment that's necessary. Um, but uh, but you know it's it's not necessarily like the the sort of cakewalk that people think it should be because of the way that they play games. But I but I don't discount the fact that I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, I would think most of our listeners, be a, certainly a, being more of a techie podcast or into video games in some some fashion, I mean, it's always been a big part of my life, um, as long as I can remember, all the way back to, you know, when I first was on the Atari, I think I was around, you know, seven or eight years old, um, and from that day on, I've always had a passion for video games, and I always will, you know, it's just it's just a part of what I do and what I enjoy, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of neat to hear that, so... You mentioned kind of, you know, reviewing a good game. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, in your opinion, what what really, you know, is a big difference between what you would consider a good game and a bad game? Um, respect for the player is something that I think a lot of games don't manage very well or concision, uh, I think, if that makes sense. I, I think that uh, a lot of games aren't very good at getting to the point, aren't very good at 
at understanding what they are. Um, and I think that a lot of good games sort of get what they are. They have like a strong core sensibility, and this is something that's that's sort of come to the forefront more often uh, over the last few years as uh, early access games have become a thing. Um, uh, I was talking to the creator of uh, Daisy. I don't know if you're familiar with Daisy, um, which is a very popular mod uh, for a game called Arma that sort of is like a post-apocalyptic zombie thing. Um, and he was working on a, a early access game and the way that that we sort of agreed about it is that like early access games in particular but most games just need to have like a very strong core loop like a very strong core I- gameplay idea and a lot of games don't and and I think that they suffer for that um, and it, it's interesting playing games that that emphasize like the size of their world over the sort of like quality of the way that they play and I think that Grand Theft Auto is sort of a counterexample of that is something that succeeds by being the broad everything game to everyone as opposed to like being particularly strong at any one thing yeah Grand Theft Auto to me is a is an amazing game and I've been a fan I've been playing it since the first one I remember the top down view it almost makes you mm-hmm. nauseous thinking about it now but um, love that game. I mean, just spent hours and hours and hours playing it and, you know, have played every iteration since. And it's just always kind of been pushing the envelope um, for a while now, which I think has been really cool to see other other games follow suit um, because it is, in some sense, you know, the standard of, of what that open world could look like. Sure, and it's more or less the biggest game in the world. I, I mean, I think that at last count, Grand Theft Auto V is estimated to have sold somewhere around 45 million copies. Um, which is just unfathomable that like, anything can sell that much of anything, um, especially at like 50, 60 bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, and you know, it's, it's, I absolutely love it and it's just so large. It's almost, um, it's almost hard to even understand how big is it is and how many little games within games within games you can kind of stumble upon. It's, 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 it's a great game. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts, and this is one I, I kind of go back and forth on, but I know a lot of people talk about it kind of, um, you know, multiplayer versus campaign versus, you know, local multiplayer. I'm a big campaign fan. Um, I like multiplayer, but unfortunately, as I've gotten older, I haven't, I don't have enough time to play to where I'm very good <laughs> at multiplayer right. for the most part. So it's, and I know they, you know, most games kind of rank you based on your skill level, but it's, it's, it's much more challenging going into multiplayer and play against people online. And I love a good story. Um, and I would like to get your thoughts on that, and, and and if that kind of plays into how you review or or you know uh, rate a game, you know in your in your articles. Um, I I also like campaign based games a lot. Um, in part because uh, there's a specific game that I play more than any other game right now, and that's uh, a game called Dota Two, um, which is a multiplayer game, uh, ironically, and it's the kind of game that will literally devour as much time as you're willing to give it because of how much stuff is in it and how complex it is. And so for me, it's nice to play games that have like a, that have a finite uh, amount of content. That's something that I can, I can like play and finish and appreciate and then walk away from. Um, And I, and I like to experience those things like a movie or a book. And in that way it's media that I'm consuming as opposed to, 
like a, a, a hobby that I'm playing with friends. Um, and, and I think that the, the sort of fundamental difference between multiplayer and single player, as far as the review experience goes, is, is that like, uh, multiplayer is, is a activity I think that you're doing with people. Uh, it's like pick up basketball in a perfect world, right? Like where you go to these places and hopefully you have friends that you can meet up with and, and just like play other people. And if not, like hopefully there's a system in place where you can play with people you don't know and actually get in a satisfying game. Um, whereas single player is just that thing that you pick up and that you experience and that you get to have. And that's the moment that you share. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know, the, it's just a different set of priorities. Like, and neither is, is necessarily superior to the other. I do think, um, the complicated conversation happening in games right now is, uh, the value proposition of one over the other. Um, and, and right or wrong. Uh, I think a lot of people who play games feel like a game that is strictly multiplayer does not have the same, uh, value to, to demand a $60 flat fee up front. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways, I, I agree with that sentiment. I think that there are too many games, uh, that are providing just incredible multiplayer experiences for free at this point to, to try to just be that for $60. And I think that you see that with stuff like uh, battlefront last fall, that there was a lot of pushback and, and sort of, uh, resentment, towards ea and uh star wars for presenting this game that i think a lot of people wanted to have like an interesting campaign and it didn't and you know i i think that that's a conversation that's ongoing uh, this year uh titanfall 2 will be shown at e3 i assume like that's been every indication and the original game was very controversial in in, in a way because it was a multiplayer only game for 60 dollars uh and a lot of people missed that campaign element, and I, Titanfall 2 is widely assumed to have a campaign uh, because of that. So, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation, and video games are in a very rapid period of transition right now. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I see a lot of people talking online back and forth about it, but like I said, for me, I, love, I do love a good campaign. Um, I can kind of pick it up, play, you know, as much time as I have available, save it, come back later, things like that. Uh, but I also do respect a good multiplayer too. And I've had some amazing times over the years playing multiplayer games with friends. Um, some I actually knew in real life, some I didn't, but, um, some good memories there too. So I, I agree. I think there's a, there's, there's certainly, you know, room for both. I just hope games don't start losing focus of the good campaign side of the house and focus purely on multiplayer going forward, which... Um, I don't know. Yeah, the The challenge there is that uh, campaigns are orders of magnitude more expensive, um, and game budgets are just going up and up for for a variety of reasons. Some of which make sense to me, and some of which don't. Uh, and multiplayer tends to be much more cost effective than uh, and than campaigns are. So. Yeah, and I, you know that makes sense. I mean, a campaign is a you know it's essentially a movie, right? I mean, it's a scripted, I, choreographed, you know, cinematic show. You know, I would yeah. I mean, I would almost uh, say the the more apt comparison to this point is like uh, a miniseries or a TV show. Um, I think that 
the the sort of Netflix HBO comparison works for for campaign games. Like it's that thing that you want to sit down and be able to marathon or be able to come back come back to, with the expectation that you can finish it. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely am with you on that. So we could definitely talk about video games all day long. I have one last question, and then I promise we'll move into some other topics. Um, are we in another golden age of video games? The 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 the, the amount of big name titles and titles that seem to be very well received between you know this year and or the start of this year and last year. Um, to me, it feels like we're. I mean, there's just some amazing games coming out. It's very highly rated games, highly anticipated games. Uh, more coming out this year. Um, are we back in another golden age of, of video games? Um, it's interesting to me that you asked that because on my end, what I see is a lot of people speculating that are we on like the precipice of a crash? Uh, are we going to see mobile and and free-to-play destroy the sort of foundation, traditional, quote, traditional uh, gaming that a lot of the audience loves or purports to love? Um and I think that, you know, uh, ideally we're going to constantly see like a, a stream of more better games that it's a very young medium, all things considered. And people keep learning from mistakes or, or just learning how to do things better and be more effective at telling stories and building systems. And And theoretically, we should keep getting like better stuff. And I think that this year we're going to have a lot of really great games like uh dishonored 2 just got a release date this year and i know a lot of people where i work are very excited about that and and i I think that every year we'll see more and more great stuff um but whether or not we're in a sort of golden age i think that for a lot of people we're we're not where we were um like seven years ago eight years ago or for example, when the SNES and Genesis were competing with one another. Um, So it's hard to say. Uh, I do know that we're in a period of uh, contraction for a lot of studios. It's it's tough out there for publishers, uh, even big publishers. Um, There are rumors that uh, Vivendi, who is a sort of European media conglomerate, is going to try to undertake a hostile takeover of Ubisoft, uh, who is the first or second biggest publisher in video games, depending on what year it is. Um, And so uh, I think it's hard to say. I think that it's a business where there's so much that's opaque about it, about how it's run, about how healthy it is, that it can be hard to know what kind of age it is until well after the fact, until the age is over, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it absolutely makes a lot of sense. You do, you really don't know until it's done, right? Kind of like good memories. You don't know you're in them until it's over and you're looking sure. back. Yeah. And, you know, and so, some of this for you, I mean, in your life, you've been closely related to, to uh, video games and this type of discussion for a long time. In fact, uh, you've had uh, a podcast of your own, which I think stems back somewhere around early 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, and it's called uh, Rebel FM, if that's correct. And uh, That is correct. Yeah, and you guys talk a little bit about your lives and video games and how they intersect. A little bit of funny business going on in there as well. Um, probably a lot better than what we do on this show here. But can you talk a little bit about how that discussion occurs and a little bit about the show? Uh, well, the show started, 
uh, ironically enough, amidst some of that aforementioned contraction, uh, there was a site called OneUp, um, which was the sort of online arm of a bunch of magazines, which included uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly. Uh, And the company that owned it sold it to a company called Ziff Davis, and Ziff Davis proceeded to lay off about 80% of the staff. Ouch. Uh, in one day. Um, and a lot of those people were friends of mine, including my roommate at the time, uh, Anthony Gallegos. And before uh, Anthony Gallegos and I had moved to the Bay Area after college, um, we did a little independent video game site, just like a blog. And we did our own little podcast that we recorded, just the two of us. And so we had some equipment and one of the things that 1UP was known for was podcasts. They were sort of the video game site that really like established popularity of podcasts and in, in like personality-driven content that way. And so when everybody got laid off, like the first impulse that I think they had was to try to, you know, record and get out there and sort of talk about not necessarily what had happened because that's always complicated when you get laid off. Um, but just to sort of bond with each other and and just like have some semblance of normalcy in Rebel FM, uh, which was predominantly hosted by people who did a show called uh, One Up FM, uh, was rooted in that. And uh, over time, the two of the original hosts uh, left to one of whom joined Sony uh, uh, at PlayStation and one of whom moved to the East Coast to join Game Informer, although he now works with me at Polygon once again. Um, oh, nice. Uh, it was left to myself and Anthony to sort of keep the show going, um, which is the thing that we decided to do to keep it going. And that was, uh, yeah, that was 2009, so it's been more than seven years now. Uh, yeah, you're you're actually, you guys just uh, published uh, in the end of last week, episode 292 now, Brad Knight, so there was another version of, of Dradcast. Uh, it was called WP Late Night. It was really WordPress-based um, uh, or focused, and it, it was kind of the, the predecessor to Dradcast. So collective, we were about 140 episodes, mm-hmm. and we're still trying to get it out there, man. I think we've got like five listeners now, which is cool. It's, uh, you know, uh, my, my mom, uh, Brad's dad, and our, and our spouses, I think. Maybe one of my kids. Who knows? The 292 <laughs> episodes. I mean, uh, uh, Brad awesome. briefly mentioned Yeah, Brad, he mentioned it before the show. Like, you know, you get to that 6,800 kind of mark, and, you know, things sometimes just don't go well, and, and, and a lot of shows die at that age. I mean, certainly it's about the, the passion about what you're talking about and the folks that you're speaking about, the topics that you're discussing. But how do you get to 292 episodes, man? I'm like, I admire that. Um, some of it is momentum, right? Like it's habit, like which is a good thing, right? Like you, it's, it's sure. the thing that you do. Um, and also, generally, we enjoy each other's company, and it's a good opportunity and excuse for us to get together. Um, it's been great professional development for several of us, um, and you know, you'd have to like doing it. Um, there were times where we've sort of played with the idea of monetizing it, but it's always been complicated because the potential for conflict of interest uh, with sponsors on a show like that that covers uh, stuff that I write about for a living, that many of us wrote sure. about for a living, is is 
complicated. Um, and so generally we've, we've largely avoided that. Um, you know, us to, to an extent too, right? Like, so now we've got some sponsors, but we like conflict of interest. So we want to take everybody's money. Like that's how we're <laughs> no, but uh, joking aside that we, that was never our premise, right? Like we, we exactly, uh, the same kind of take we enjoy each other's company and chatting was something that we only got to do in the hallways at these these little you know geek events that we would go to and that that discussion that tone with uh people a lot smarter than us in the hallways just that unconference feeling and having this kind of open dialogue around topics that some people on more maybe formalized shows or or blogs wouldn't touch or wouldn't touch with the voice of like reason and really you know approaching these topics directly we were okay doing that, and I, I know for me that was an exciting kind of thing to do that uh, in a way that I was actually putting out meaningful content, and I didn't have to write it, right? I could just talk about it with my buddy and not really caring what other people thought about what our take was on these topics, and it's turned into this thing now where we have um, awesome guests like you to come on and kind of tell their story and some of the things that they're involved in, and, and it uh, it makes it really fun to do every week, so I can see that being uh, something that helps you sustain kind of that push because there is work that goes into this. This isn't like a, um, you know, although it seems like it, at least from on the drag cast, a five minute kind of affair to get it out and, and broadcast, you know, uh, edit and, and launch. There is a lot of work that goes into it. Are, is, are you finding a lot of that kind of some of um, some of the undertaking that, that, that it takes? Is, is that something that you enjoy doing as well? Um, so for us, uh, we record locally. Um, so people come to my apartment and we have sure. recording equipment here. Like we have stand up mics, we have a mixer, we've got like garage band. We do it sort of old school that way. That's um, rad. Love it. And so that takes hours, uh, and editing it takes hours and sure. Uploading it and getting it published takes a bit. So it's about eight to 10, sometimes longer hours a week. Um, and yeah, it feels like a little side job that doesn't actually pay anything. Um, and part of the thing that makes it worth it and cool is the fact that people still listen, that people still care, um, that, you know, uh, one of the sort of running gags on the podcast is that my co-host, who uh, Anthony, who typically is the one that introduces it and sort of emcees it, uh, always gets the episode number wrong. Um <laughs> and not by accident, like he just never, he can never remember what it is. Um, and while I was out of the country last week, uh, he put up an episode and said something to the effect of, uh, it's been great. You know, we've got, it, it's been really good doing the podcast. Sorry, it's late because it went up late. Cause that's what happens when it's not a job. It's a side thing sometimes. Uh, you know, we've got a few million downloads and it's really exciting. And, and it was funny to me because when I got back, I saw that and I, and I had to correct him because, you know, we've over the course of the last several years, like we've done more than 11 million downloads of the show. And, uh, the fact that people keep listening is like a big reason why we do it. And honestly, if people stopped listening, if people didn't want to listen, then we would probably just stop doing it. Um, because you know, it's, we can hang out without recording if we need to, but like people seem to get, something valuable from it and it's nice to be able to give that to people that's awesome you know we're, we're yeah i mean you, you look at our kind of uh our group you know our, our audience it's so it's so closed off compared to that i think that you know it's it's challenging at least uh 
initially um, getting beyond that. I mean, we've got we've got listeners in the WordPress world, but that's so small in comparison to let's say the game world, right, where it's really open to a much broader audience. We've now just started to kind of head that direction, uh, where we're opening it up to have hosts like you come on and really talk through through stuff that's well beyond um, just um, uh, WordPress. And excited for that opportunity. Hopefully, people listen to us as well. That's pretty cool, man. Eleven million downloads. I mean, geez, uh, we'll we'll have we'll be eighty six years old before we hear that. <laughs> keep on, well, keep it on. <laughs> on truck it well i'll tell you what it's been good chatting i think this is an exciting show and i would love to move on to this week's pressing topics stand by pressing topics of the week and you're on so these days what what is the average size of a game that you're reviewing in terms of just data i mean it's it's got to be pretty big i'm assuming um, i i mean would you like to guess I, you know, I, I have, like, I wouldn't even know where to start. It's honestly, gotta be, if I had to guess, I would say like a couple gigs. gigs. Yeah, a couple gigs. Yeah. Oh, gosh, uh, generally between forty and fifty. Gigabytes. Wow, yeah. that's way bigger than I expected. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. Uh, a lot of games ship that large and have day one patches that are multiple gigabytes. You know, we, there's an article that was just uh, put out on Wired uh, here recently. Uh, actually, I think yesterday. And it talks about the average size of a web page and how now the average size of a web page is about the same size, data-wise anyways, than that classic computer game Doom, which, I, Brad, I know you're a big Doom fan, buddy. Uh, Love isn't, that a, isn't that a crazy kind of comparison <laughs> where we're at today in terms of web pages, the images, and data that's on there compared to the early game like Doom? This is one of those, it's like a, it's kind of, it's a little bit mind-blowing, but it also kind of makes you feel extremely old, you know what I mean? You're like, uh, Doom is, <laughs> is the same size as a web page. are you kidding me? You know what I mean? So it's like, I like it, but it also kind of, I don't know, makes me feel like an old fart. <laughs> it's wild, though. Doom, I mean, I didn't remember the size of Doom, but they, they said it took up about 2.39 megabytes of space, so you had to have two floppies. Uh, to get the original Doom. Um, and in comparison, Wired.com, their homepage is about 7.8 megabytes, which obviously is a more complex site than most probably, but um, that would take six floppy disks just for their homepage if you stored it all locally. Uh, for uh, for you youngsters listening in, a floppy disk, you can probably <laughs> look it up on Wikipedia. But, you, know uh, that, you know that save icon that you know have no idea what the hell it is? That's a floppy disk. <laughs> <laughs> Doom. I mean, Doom is crazy. If you there's there's estimates that Doom was installed on more computers than than Windows. You know, back in like '95. Um, I mean, Doom is really transcends just the the early PC days of when PCs were really starting to take off and and you know be more popular in in people's homes. Um, I think early video games had a lot to do with that because, you know, people wanted Doom. They wanted, you know, this Wolfenstein game that they had heard about. They wanted to be able to play these things. Um, and I think it, it, in my mind, I think it really helped push the home, you know, the personal computer market. I remember it uh, being a differentiator between the 386 and the 486 as a platform to, like, you could play Doom on a 386, but if you really wanted to play Doom... You needed a 486, and you needed a sound blaster, like for a oh, good audio. Sound blaster. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I was I was building. That's when I pushed into building with the early AMD chipsets. Man, now those were uh, those were pretty amazing. 
386, I believe, still manages some of the control systems in most of the shuttles that NASA launches into space. Ain't that some shit? Oh, man. I think that, the other thing this article points out is just it illustrates, as they quote, the Webb's growing obesity problem, which I think is a pretty good um, <laughs> funny way to state it. But it is a, it is it is becoming a problem as websites get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and, and especially as as more ISPs and stuff are implementing data caps or, um, you know, throttling. It's it's going to become a problem, you know, so it's it does highlight it a bit. And I guess put it in a little more context that maybe people can understand, like, hey. One web page is the size of doom. We've got to do something about this. The internet is not fat. It's husky. All right. Let's get that straight. <laughs> it's big boned. I mean, I, I can offer a little bit of perspective on this as a, as a person who works for a company whose sites are often some of the fatter ones. Um, like, <laughs> oh, I know that Polygon uh, is a pretty heavy page load and that it, it takes some time. And I mean, some of it is the like the visual demands of a of a modern site uh like there's a lot more pictures than words uh, and pictures just they just take up a lot of space uh but not just that but just the scripts that run on these pages to dynamically generate content as you're scrolling down to deliver ads uh to make sure that they're properly responsive for different platforms um fonts take up a lot of space if you're not using just sort of default web fonts um it's easy to go from something very small to something very bloated very quickly um but it is something that company-wide we work on on a regular basis because it's not for us so much uh how big the page is so much as how it takes how long it takes to load yeah speed Um, is the most important thing right i mean that's and now that it's a pretty big ranking factor which is great um, it's putting, it's put a much, you know, it's been that way for a number of years, but it's put a much larger focus on optimizing, um, yeah. you know, optimizing. So even if it is a larger page, it loads as fast as possible for a good user experience. Yeah. It's definitely a priority for us. I like how they end this article. They say it's time. And I quote, it's time for the web to burn some fat to avoid certain doom. <laughs> oh man. This is some good writing right here. Uh, speaking about trimming the fat there, losing some fat, it's funny that uh, there's a there's, uh, iTunes, uh, guys, is 13 years old, 13 years old, and it is absolutely abysmal from a user experience. It hasn't really changed much worth anything in those 13 years. Are you guys still using uh, iTunes? Have you used iTunes or are you on to these, these web-driven um, uh, engines like Spotify and such? I don't. I don't touch it. You know what I use iTunes for to make sure our podcast feed still works. <laughs> that's that's about it. So every day I load it up, hit the old refresh on our podcast, make sure it downloads, and then I close iTunes. Yeah, uh, we host through Libsyn, so Libsyn handles all that stuff for us. Uh, I have never used iTunes ever, ever. Uh, I've uninstalled it every time it's appeared on a computer I was using. Um, I used. Uh, streaming services basically as soon as they started appearing i used pandora like back in 2004 2005 mm-hmm. um and that moved to rdo like in 2009 and i just had to give up rdo because they got bought by pandora and now i use spotify but uh i can't i don't really know why anyone would use itunes for anything anymore no i mean uh, it's yeah it's the you know the uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm with you. Like, I'm all streaming. I actually, 
I used to have a you know an iTunes library and thousands of MP3s, and they were always a mess. Nothing was labeled correctly. Every you know different folders for different songs that should have been on the same album. Um, it was just a mess. And then transferring from you know new to old computer, blah blah blah. I just gave it all up and went completely streaming. So I just I use Slacker Radio. I have for I don't know four or five years. I don't have a single MP3, and I feel great about it. <laughs> you know, I think See, it works well. I still have all that. I still have a library. Like I still, and I still have use for MP3 files. But all of my listening really is driven by, uh, by like online services. And Spotify has been sort of one that I've been using for the last few months. Yeah, it's just it's got a bad rap. It has always been very slow, very sluggish. It's a monster of an application for what it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I I think there's some some validation of the point that it's 13 years old and still awful. <laughs> I still use it. Damn it. <laughs> I don't know. No, is there just, a better competitor for iTunes? I really don't know if there is. It's just uh, default on all my Mac stuff, right? So it's there. It, it does connect. Uh, it is frustrating when you do have kind of the unorganized fashion that they decide to throw my damn music into weird directories and folders and such, right? Or, or duplications, which is awesome. There's been times where it sinks, and then all of a sudden I've got seven versions of the same song. Like, why would that happen? Um, so there are, uh, you know, these inconsistencies that, that really lead to a poor user experience. Um, but it seems to work okay for the most part. It's there. I, you know, when I want to throw on the black keys, I just press go, and it kind of plays through them. So for me, it's just easy. It's you know, the music's local, and then now with the ability to kind of share it across all of my devices, it's become fairly simple to use um but i can see i can see the value in a streaming service i've used various ones over the years like uh pandora's one uh one that i used i even had a pro account for quite quite a while um now kind of let that lapse i just uh, didn't care for the kind of randomness in, in that specific service um that it was challenging to play kind of all the music i wanted to listen to right so just having the album has been an easy way for me to just okay i want this song that's what i want to hear and that's what I play, but is what it is. Um, I want to step back into like the 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 geeky web uh, world. We were talking about websites and kind of how they render and, and sizes and stuff. But one of the things that uh, I think is really interesting is how they're viewed and the tools that we use to view them, uh, which are browsers, web browsers in general. We've had ton of them over the years and this has been this kind of back and forth you had um, internet explorer for years kind of dominating the space you had other uh, browsers like Netscape and Opera that were players at one time um, you know the advent of uh, Firefox that was like holy cow this open source you know option that was pretty amazing and then that that um, that swelled up bigger than some of these damn websites we're seeing today and became almost unusable for a long time um, and the advent of Chrome Chrome came around, and although it's kind of going the same route of, of Firefox in terms of being just uh, resource-intensive and challenging to use at times, it likes to freeze, at least from my perspective, never likes to let go of DNS or cache. Um, it has now overtaken Internet Explorer as the most popular desktop browser uh, in use today, which I would have thought actually this would have happened a long time ago, but it just it just happened here. Uh, you know, over over the last few months. So it's showing now, I think that it's somewhere around 41% of all browser market share, um, whereas uh, Internet Explorer is now down at uh, just about a quarter of a point under that. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming this is going to continue to grow, right? Like, who's really using 
Internet Explorer like they used to these days. Not not many, right? I mean, it's dying off. You know, I think the um, especially with you know the Windows 10 doesn't support some of the older versions that people have been hanging on to for years, uh, like IE8 and 9. Um, so I think it's kind of being force killed off a little bit. And honestly, I don't think Microsoft's that mad about it. I think they want people on their latest browsers. You know, they want them to use Edge. Um, but it is right. So that would be that would be my question: is is Edge on this list? Yeah, according like, to it, the it... according to the article, he says he factored in, um, and it's a, an approximate in terms of the edge percentages. But he did calculate that all together to come up with that, basically IE, and he's rolling edge into IE, even though it's not ed, IE. Um, it's forty one point three five percent, and Chrome is forty one point six six percent. So just barely passes it, and that does include edge. I mean, I, I guess it would be in part because ever since Windows 7, Microsoft has been pretty flexible about people choosing their browser, about like allowing people to cha- change search engines, things like that. And uh, maybe that's what has to do with it. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, it's... I, I use Chrome and I'm not a fan at all of it. It is like a bane of my existence on a regular basis. Dude, same here. Like I use it and it just, it's so problematic, man. Um, I used to love Firefox's um, uh, kind of debugging tools and stuff like that when I was doing a lot more front end stuff. And um, that was cool. But as that slowed down, I didn't have the need for it. And Chrome at the time was like significantly faster. Now the thing just freezes to freeze. And, and it's mm-hmm. like, you, you can't, you can't clear cash. Um, it just likes this. Oh man, it's just annoying as all hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think I think whatever the masses use are always going to be problematic because you get into things like extensions. And the only real true way to test how well Chrome runs is to get rid of all the shit you've added into it. You know what I mean? Run it, run it default. I have a lot of extensions. They do a lot of things when I load a page. You know, so I take that into account. But I've, I've, out of all the browsers, I've, I've certainly enjoyed Chrome the best. Um, Edge isn't a bad browser. I don't know if you guys have used it, but it's actually pretty decent um, of a browser and certainly more decent than the Internet Explorer. But I would expect it to keep going up and IE to keep going down, especially since a lot of the Internet Explorers that are in these kind of browser market shares are end of life. You know, There are no more updates, and people, as they upgrade, will, will drop them, whether they stick with Edge or not. You know, that's kind of we're kind of seeing that now. It it looks like Edge is maybe around three percent market share. I mean, back. it's it's still like a browser in beta, for lack of a better term. Like, there's not there's features that were promised for Edge that aren't working yet, and they've been very clear about that. Um, so, I don't know. I've, every time I've used it, it's been very fast, especially compared to Chrome of late. But I don't know. I'm going 100% mobile, man. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Chrome? Chrome mobile? Oh, boy. That's terrible. Yeah, you know what? If folks are looking for some web hosting, I've got a recommendation for them. They need to go talk to Pagely. Uh, if you are running WordPress website and you're looking for some type of hosted platform to manage that uh, WordPress site or sites in a more intuitive and secure way, I would definitely recommend go check out Pagely. They recently on their uh, customer portal have put uh, put in some two-factor authentication capabilities, which is great. Um, now adding kind of an extra layer of security with all of that customer data that you want to protect 
for sure a good thing. Um, also, domain name services, PressDNS, which they recently launched, uh, automatically routes all user requests to one of the pages' cache nodes nearest them uh, for faster response time. So that's uh, that's always an added uh, piece of awesome there. Rapid deploy VPS is if you're looking for a virtual private server, deploy Pagely VPS in any of their nine re- regions instantly. A great way to get and manage your own uh, server. And uh, and right there you'll have hosted uh, and managed WordPress capabilities. So if you're serious about your WordPress website, you need a serious host. Make sure you go check out Pagely.com. Uh, Brad and Ms. Prime, why don't we move into this week's Bar Tricks, buddy? Let's do it. Let me show you a bar trick. Dad. Uh, in the couple few years we've been running this podcast, that is still by far my favorite bumper. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and knock this out of, out of the way here because I think it's kind of exciting. We've got a couple book authors at our company, Web Dev Studios. One of them, Lisa Saban Wilson, has been doing a lot of work uh, with Wiley and the folks at uh, the, the you know uh, running all the Dummies books, uh, specifically WordPress for Dummies. But she's written a couple titles: WordPress for Dummies, WordPress Web Web Design for Dummies, as well as WordPress All in One for Dummies, which. I was able to write some of the security chapter and kind of exciting. It's their happy 25th anniversary. And what we've done at WebDev Studios, if you head over to webdevstudios.com slash blog, we put up a contest that you should get involved with today so that you can go get some free stuff. Now, you're probably going to win win some free books. If you're the winner, you're going to get some free books. This is pretty awesome. But I think more importantly, I think this is Brad's favorite part of the whole contest. So we're giving away some beer Drinking utensils, Brad. Isn't that awesome? So you can go pick up oh, a pint glass. Yeah, yeah man. Um, so Hold get up. a pint glass and a few books, uh, all of the WordPress for Dummies uh, titles. If you head over to word, uh, webdevstudios.com slash blog. There you go. That's a good bar trick. I have a, I have a fun one this week. So uh, if you're familiar or not familiar, I should say, with the old Wayback Machine. If you go over to archive.org, you can punch in a website, um, and it will load the history of that website. It goes pretty far back. It takes random snapshots and downloads of the website um, over the years. It's kind of fun. You can throw in Yahoo or even a site you made back in maybe early 2000 or late 99, and um, it might have a snapshot of it. But uh, there's a script released over on GitHub, and it essentially lets you download the entire Wayback Machine archive for a given URL. So... Um, if there is maybe a site you had back in the day that you want to uh, preserve, and I actually have a few of these I'm going to download and save, um, you know, you can go on here and with a couple command lines, um, it will download um, everything before a certain date. So you can put, you know, 1997 um, and the URL, and it will download every copy of that website prior to 1997 locally down to your machine. Um, I think it's all raw HTML. So, um, well, it would have to be. I don't know how else they would process any kind of complex, dynamic stuff. So, uh, pretty neat, though, but a cool way to archive stuff, especially if you have older sites maybe you launched or supported and you don't have copies anymore. Uh, A little bit cooler than a screenshot. Uh, Check it out. It's over on uh, GitHub slash JSVine slash WayBackPack. And we'll have a link in our show notes so you can check that out. But it's kind of a neat tool. Arthur, what are we able to dig up a bar trick for us today? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how many people. I don't know if you guys use Slack every day, but Slack uh, is definitely a big part of I, my day. 
let, let me interrupt you there for a second <laughs> because this is kind of funny. We use HipChat, and the last couple of weeks, a certain other host on the Dragcast besides myself has been hinting at the opportunity to maybe move over to Slack, and there has been a large, large discussion about that this morning. So, yes, Slack is awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's funny because Slack just works with all those other like dumb dot com tools that are ho- totally hilarious, but really incredibly vital once you start using them, like Trello. Uh, I don't know if you guys use Trello. <laughs> yeah, but for Trello sure, it's pretty good. Uh, the I do have a Slack thing that I do on a regular basis that not many people seem to know about uh, that I find extremely helpful as someone who has. Literally so many things to do in a day that I don't remember any of them, uh, which is that uh, Slack allows you to set reminders uh, and it will allows you to set reminders that will ping you both uh, on one time intervals and on a schedule. Uh, So if you type slash remind uh, me and then the thing to remind you at and then a time uh, or weekly, uh, it'll uh, give you messages and slack that pop up reminding you to do these things uh which i have found to be extremely helpful That's and they'll awesome. actually sit in your uh in your messages under slack bot and allow you to leave them there or dismiss them or to uh change your reminder settings um which sort of underlies the usefulness of slack as a as a productivity tool as opposed to just a communications platform um and if you hit slash uh, anywhere in Slack, it'll actually give you a list of commands uh, that seems to be growing by by the week. Uh, it's one of the things that we actually really like about Slack at Vox. So. That is awesome. I did not know you could That's, do that in Slack, and I could really see this being a useful tool, especially the recurring reminders. Yeah, we also uh, have multiple Trello boards uh, that we use to manage the the site and rooms specifically in slack uh for different sections and we have it set so that anytime a change is made to a card that change propagates into the appropriate room in slack so you can go to that slack channel and review literally everything that's happened on that board without actually having to sign into troll and look at specific cards or reminders so uh, I think that's one of helpful the to me as a manager. beautiful things about Slack is the uh, the powerful integrations with services, like you said, tools that we have to use yeah. day in and day out, make your life a little bit easier. I love the little examples on there. I looked it up in the help center. Remind me to tickle an octopus at 6 p.m. tomorrow. <laughs> yep, and it definitely will. Uh, whether or not you actually want to do that is up to you, but it will remind <laughs> you to do that. Awkward. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, well, you, you might have just put the, uh, the icing on the cake there. There's another one called To Do Here, which is pretty slick. Man, yeah, some really cool integrations that uh, make actually consolidate some of the, the 26 damn pieces of software I have loaded or you know tabs uh, in my browser I have opened uh, to manage a lot of these things. So re- really you cool also, when you start Go ahead. There, there are also custom commands uh, that organizations can build within Slack. Uh, like we have... Uh, slash ask Vox, which uh, asks Vox.com, the website, uh, the art sort of like politics and news site, uh, a specific question, like it goes directed to them, or ask Jim, which sends an anonymous question to our CEO, Jim Bankoff, uh, things like that. So uh, we've been very aggressive with that. And also stuff like Giphy has introduced uh, Slack commands that are pretty fun that I know that other sites are also using. Um, and we store like 
uh, Google Docs with like contact information and like predetermined hangouts and and web meetings and stuff like that, so people can access them at any time. So that's Slack has been extremely helpful for us. Oh, Brad, are you going to have it deployed tonight? Is that what you're telling me? It's going live in five minutes. Yeah, I figured as much. I figured as much. Like, show ends, Slack is live. Well, I'll tell you what. This has been an epic episode, and that was a huge and awesome uh, way to end it. Um, Certainly uh, very helpful for me. Uh, The episode 97 is in the book's author. Thank you so much for being here. Where can can folks find you? What's the best way uh, for people to get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at A-E-G-I-E-S. Uh, I run a nonsensical art-focused Tumblr uh, that goes by Pragmagic, which is P-R-A-G-M-A-G-I-C uh, dot Tumblr.com. And you can find my work at Polygon.com. Beautiful. Man, I'll tell you what. Thanks again for coming on board. It was really great to have you. Bradford, where can we find you, buddy? You can find me on Twitter, Williams B-A. And I'm Adre Maida for the Rad and Dread. I'm the Doctor. Thanks for joining us on episode 97 with Arthur Geese. Deuces. Thanks for listening. If you have content for the show, want to submit to be a guest host, or just want to listen to previous shows, visit dreadcast.com. While you're there, make sure you click the iTunes subscribe link to catch us on iTunes. Don't forget to follow at Dreadcast on Twitter. Join Brad and Dre for a new guest host next time on another episode of the Dreadcast.